Well, good morning, everyone. Well, this thing's like pretty loud. Wasn't that a cool video? Amazing stories. Uh, like I, uh, everybody said beforehand, my name is Mike Mead, and I serve in our teen ministry here in Lighthouse. And uh, it's been actually a, been a it's been a busy couple weeks uh, for us in the teen ministry. But personally, I want to give a shout out to my wife. Friday was her birthday. She turned. Um, Yes, my beautiful wife. She turned 25 years old, and uh, a couple couple weeks ago I turned 23, so we're pretty young. But uh, you know, I think we're uh, we still got a lot of life ahead of us. And uh, we had team camp actually uh, last week, and team camp was incredible. Actually, we're going to hear some sharing about that next week in our service. But uh, it's very encouraging to be up here this morning. And I was thinking about it this week, and I was thinking, you know, every time I do speak. Uh, all the other ministry staff, they're out of town, so I guess they trust me to preach the word to you in a, in a good way, and, and, um, or maybe I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why they always leave when I have to speak, so. Um, but whatever it is, you know, I, I really have a, a, something on my heart that I want to share with you this morning, and, uh, and I do, I take this seriously. You know, I think not only are we speaking the word, but we need to live it out in our lives as well. And uh, it's a very big honor that I've uh, definitely um, been looking forward to. And so uh, a couple of weeks ago, we actually started this series called Amazing Stories. And Peter did a, le- a great lesson on Noah. And he talked about these boards of obedience and respect and purity and, and how we need each one of these boards to build our own boat for God, right? And uh, I've been thinking about what I wanted to talk about because there's many amazing stories in the Bible. You have uh, Joseph and his... Uh, technicolored uh, dream coat and um, or what, whatever it is, and uh, you got um, Jonah who was swallowed by this giant fish. And today, the story that I wanted to talk to you guys about is one that if you grew up going to church, you heard, and if you didn't grow up to ch- going to church, all right, uh, and if you didn't grow up going to church. Uh, it's okay. You may have not heard this story before. Um, and the story that we're going to be looking at is the story of Naaman. And uh, when I say the, the name Naaman, how many of you know what story I'm talking about, just by a raise of hands? Okay, about 15 of us grew up going to church. That's great. <laughs> um, no, but this may be a brand new story for you today. And uh, the story of Naaman actually takes place in 2 Kings chapter 5. So if you guys want to turn your Bibles there. And uh, we'll, we'll actually have uh, that up on screen also. And we'll get, th- we'll get there in a minute, but i got some things to, to, to set this up. <clears throat> in 2 Kings chapter 5, this is where we read about Naaman. And Naaman was actually not Jewish. Jewish, uh, Jewish. Naaman was the commander of the army of the Arameans. And uh, this actually takes place in about 850 B.C. And so we have this captain of this army, named, uh, and his name is Naaman, and he actually has an interaction with a Jewish prophet. And in doing so, he almost, not literally and not tangibly, but he almost has an interaction with the living God. And he comes face to face with God. And uh, so we have this, this man who worshipped a pagan God, and we have this other guy who uh, worshipped the one and true God, and they interact, and this guy's life is completely transformed and, uh, and he's completely changed. And we're going to take a look at this this morning. But the reason why I did want to look at this 
was because I believe this story addresses an expectation that we have all had at some point in our lives. And I believe, and this is the expectation that, I, that I'm talking about. And I don't know if it's just an American thing or a middle class American thing. But at some point in every one of our lives, maybe even right now, we expect God to give us an explanation for why He does what He does, why He allows what He allows, and why He expects what He expects from us. And there's a part of me and there's a part of you in some point of our lives where we feel like God owes us an explanation. And, uh, we're, you know, God, why did you allow this to happen? God, why did you cause this to happen? Why do you expect me to do what you've revealed to me in your word? Why should I manage my morality this way when no one at school and nobody at work seems to care? How come I should be honest when no one else is? How come I should stay in a tough marriage? Or, or why should I get out of this relationship? And at some point of our lives, we think, God, I don't want to argue with you because you're God. But before, you know, I think about doing what you want me to do, I think you need to explain yourself a little bit. And we would never say this, but God, you owe me an explanation. And I think we go here quickly as Americans, especially as Americans, because we don't, we're not familiar. Whoa, that's already switching on me. All right. That's all good. Uh, you can go back one slide for now. Okay. Um, I think we go here, especially as Americans, because we're not familiar with the sovereign. We're not familiar with a king. We elect our officials, right? We, we choose who goes into office and we can actually impeach those and take people out of office. And so the truth is, sometimes we treat God like an elected official. And we feel like we have room and we have margin to argue with God. And in fact, even our language sometimes, and I don't think it's bad, but you know, God, I, I want to surrender my life to you, like, like that's even an option. Or, you know, God, you know, I want to make you Lord of my life, like, I don't know, let me think about this a little bit and I'll get back to you, you know? And, and we, we have this attitude, and in the language we use sometimes, it kind of hints that God is just a little bit bigger than we are. Like He was just voted in by a 51% margin. And uh, so consequently, our response can be, you know, God, that's probably a good idea. But before, you know, I obey you, before I obey your scriptures, I need some more information. And uh, the truth is, even though we never say these things, I don't, I've never heard anybody say this. But the way we operate, you know, the way we pray, the way we respond to God definitely shows that, you know, we feel like God owes us an explanation. And I think there's many reasons for this. It's not because we're these bad, nasty people, you know. Um, but I do think it's partly due to the world we live in today. Uh, we're not ancient people anymore. We're very sophisticated. We're advanced. You know, we, uh, you know we've, we're a modern people. We have figured out how God does some of the things that God does. You know, we understand weather patterns. We, uh, you know, we can understand photosynthesis and we understand uh, greenhouse effect and how that affects our planet. You know, we uh, can predict the weather a week from now. We understand life and DNA and, and chromosomes and how that makes us look the way we look. You know, we understand reproduction and all these different things. And, um, you know, we understand things people have never understood before. And with that can come a sense of arrogance. It's like, you know, as a kid, and, and not maybe at a specific point, but, you know, all of us had maybe been to a magic show before, right? Seen a magician. And, uh, you know, during his, his act, 
right in the middle of this trick, we figure out what he's doing, right? And we kind of feel like, oh, we're smart, and we figured it out, and, you know, I don't think those are her legs. I think, I think as he's putting the saw through the box, I think she pulls her legs into the box, and everybody around is going, duh, you know? Hence, there's no blood on the floor, right? But when we figure these things out, we feel this sense of empowerment. And uh, we can almost have this sense of arrogance. Hey, since I know how you did it, I'm not impressed anymore, which is arrogant. And uh, what happens to us, and uh, we can't help it, but as we continue to advance and understand more of how God does what he does, with that does come some arrogance. And uh, the other thing that happens now is that now that we've become so advanced, we don't have to submit to the way things are anymore. We can actually control the way things are. Think about this for a second. We don't have to submit to aging like we used to, right? We got creams and pills and, you know, plastic surgery and Botox. And we, as we get older, we can look younger, right? For some, you know, for some things, we don't have to submit to diseases anymore. Because of modern medicine and because of discoveries, we can cure diseases. And for some of us, we wouldn't even be here this morning because one of our parents maybe wasn't able to conceive, and so they went to this really smart doctor, and he figured out a way where you can be here today. And actually, maybe you even have a twin brother or a twin sister, or maybe both. Things got a little out of hand, right? But you're here today because of these things. Um, you know, also another thing, maybe this week or in a few months, a lot of us are going to get on a plane, and we're going to defy gravity for hours, right? We're going to be flying to Europe or across the country, and it's crazy, we have learned to control things, predict things, and manipulate things. And with all that, we lose our sense of wonder. We lose our sense of awe at God. And because we figure out how the magic trick was done, we figured out how God did this certain thing. And uh, what we forget is that just because we figured these things out, it doesn't diminish their brilliance. It doesn't diminish the fact that they've originated it and that they did it, but in that moment of discovery, we feel like we're pretty smart. And, uh, and, and this even translates into our relationship with God now, and we feel like maybe we have some room to argue with God and maybe push back a little bit. And um, our response, you know, hey God, I feel like you owe me an explanation. We figured out a lot of the things that you have done. And before I obey, and before I change, and before I give up, and before I embrace this message... I feel like you owe me an explanation. I feel like you owe me an explanation. And here's the question I have for you today. You can change it now. I don't know if it's going to work. Yeah, if you can change it. There you go. The first question is, what if God doesn't owe us an explanation? And this is, this is maybe how one of my teens would say it. But what if God is like God? Right? <laughs> and what if just because we figured some things out... It doesn't diminish who God is. What if we're supposed to stay in awe of the fact that, you know, God has created the human mind in such a way that we are able to accumulate information as generations go by, and instead of getting dumber and dumber and dumber, we keep getting smarter and smarter and smarter, and instead of getting less and less and less impressed with God, we should be becoming more and more and more impressed with God. And after all of our accomplishments, what if God is still like God? What if he is like a king? What if God doesn't owe you, or what if he doesn't owe me an explanation? 
What if the question is not about what? What if the question is about who is asking us? And this story that we're going to look at today will remind us of this truth that no matter how smart and advanced we are, God is God. And at some point in our life, we will face this question and we'll be required to to say, God, even though I don't understand, even though I need some more explanation, even though this makes no sense at all and I can't explain it and I can't predict it, or maybe I can predict it and it doesn't look good, the answer is yes, because you are God. And this leads way into our story, but if we want to bow our heads and pray before we get into this, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you that we can be here and just see your creation on the way here. How, what a beautiful morning it is. And I really pray that today that our hearts will be open to your message. God, you know, we're definitely, there's a lot of great things that uh, we have figured out and a lot of things that we've done, but God, you are still God. And God, when you call us to obey, sometimes we may not have all the explanation for it, but we need to obey because you are God. And God, I pray that we treat you like the king that you are and that we have just a great lesson today. Please speak through me. And I pray that as we leave today, that we can apply this to our lives. God, we love you so much. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right. Second Kings chapter five, verse one. If we can uh, switch the slide here. By the way, I want to thank our tech people in the back. You know, we wouldn't even be able to do this every Sunday if it wasn't for them. So let's give them a hand. But in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to start reading here. It says, Now Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. And he was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded. Everybody knew who Naaman was. He was a very popular guy. And because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram, he was a valiant soldier, but he had a problem. Naaman had leprosy. Let's go ahead and switch uh, the slide. Verse 2. Now it says, Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And so we've got to understand something here. Uh, we'll take a second to pause. And at this time, Israel was no longer a superpower as far as military goes. And their, their military had declined a little bit. And so what happened was that there, a lot of the bordering countries around Israel were constantly encroaching on the boundaries of Israel. And in this specific instance, they, on this raid, you know, they steal some of the women and the children. And uh, one of those girls that they steal uh, becomes a servant of Naaman's wife. And we'll look in verse 3 next. All right. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. This girl finds out that her master now, Naaman, has leprosy. And she's saying, look, I know a man in Israel. And if he can go there, it's a possibility that he can be cured of his disease. Now let's look in the next verse in chapter five. And we'll have a few comments here. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now, this is where the confusion begins and the story, that the plot of the story begins to thicken a little bit. Because the king of Aram thought, if there's a man who's powerful enough to heal my servant of his leprosy, it has to be the king of Israel. Because he's the most powerful person in this region. And if it's not him, it must be someone on his court. And so if I can get Naaman into the capital city in front of the king, 
then whoever this mystery man is, he can possibly cure my servant Naaman. And I understand something very important here. There's an there's a important piece of information. We're not on very good terms with Israel. And so we're going to have to send some very valuable things and so that they will know that we mean peace. And that, you know, hopefully we can buy a miracle from my servant Naaman. Looking at in the next verse in chapter 6, it says that he sent him with 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Well, that's kind of odd. He spends all these thousands of pounds of silver and gold and then 10 sets of clothing. Well, clothing was actually very valuable because everything was handmade during that time. And so he sends all these things. And the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now we need to stop for a second and picture this. Now first of all, here comes this small army with Naaman, right? And with all these wagons. And they go right into Israel and they stroll right into the capital city. And the king of Israel gets word that there's an entourage with the white flag from Aram outside. And this guy comes in and he's saying, why in the world are you here? What could you possibly want? And the, the request in the letter is not of peace, but it is to see if he would be able to cure his servant, Naaman. In the next verse. As soon as, as, soon as, one of the, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? Now, what happens a lot of times in the stories in the Bible is time is compressed. And so this actually probably took place over a two to three day period. And so the king, you know, goes off by himself and he spends some time and he's thinking about things and he's getting advice. And he's like, you know what, something is just not right here. Why in the world would they roll into town and ask me to do something they know I can't do? Why would they do that? And so he consults his advisors and he comes up with a possible explanation. He says, I think I know why. See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. Oh, I get it. You want a war. And you don't just want to start a war. You want a reason to start a war. And so you send all this money with you and, you. and you ask me to do something that you know I can't possibly do. And so as a result, your servant Naaman comes back to the, to the king of Aram and he says, I asked him, but he didn't do it for me. And then you get all angry and you want to start a war. I see what you're up to. You're trying to pick a fight with us. And you're using your dying general to do it. Do it. And during all this conversation and all this drama that's going on, Word gets out of the capital city and it actually, uh, word ends up going to the prophet of Elisha. And, uh, and that's where Naaman should have went to, to begin with. And we'll look in the next verse here. Verse 8, if you guys are following along in your Bibles. It said, When Elisha the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? How did the man come to me? And he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. He says, how did the man come to me? And when I'm done with him, he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And the king's reading this letter and he's like, I don't think he came to find out whether there's a prophet in Israel. I think he came because he wanted to be cured of his leprosy. Which brings us to the whole point of this message. In the area of your life right now, where you're struggling with God, whatever it is, Maybe God, you feel like God is wanting you to do something. 
Maybe you read something in the Bible. Maybe your parents are asking you to do something and you've argued and you've argued and you've argued, but you know in your heart, you know in your heart that there's something God wants you to do. Whether it's a relationship that you're in, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your finances, maybe it's your career, maybe it's whether to adopt or foster a child, whatever it is, you know there's something in your heart that God is wanting you to do. And in that area, when you know God wants you to do something, here comes the surprise of the story. And here's, this is just the reality of following God in general, that there's always something more at stake than the circumstances surrounding your obedience. There's always something bigger hanging in the balance than your simple act of obedience. And Elisha says to the king of Israel, send the man to me, and when I'm done with him, he, came, he maybe have come to be cured, but he will know that there is a God. He will know that there is something much bigger that God has in store for him. And so the king agrees. He agrees to the, to the request. And we read here in uh, verse uh, 9 of chapter 5. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now imagine this. They leave the capital city and this huge army is going through the countryside because Elisha lives out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, when people find out that this army's coming, they leave because, you know, hide the women and the children. They don't want their, you know, women and children to be uh, stolen again. And so, you know, they roll up into this town right at the doorstep of this little hut, Elisha's hut, right? And as the dust settles, you know, you got, you got Naaman standing there in all his glory as the general of the army, right? And he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he expects this prophet Elisha to come out and meet him. And he's waiting. And the Bible says this. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. And we look at the scripture, you know, and imagine this. Here's the great Naaman. He's standing here in all of his glory. Everybody knows who Naaman is, and he waits. And Elisha doesn't even have the respect to come out and meet him. He sends his servant. And so, you, you know, you got this servant and he comes out and he's like, oh, hey, oh, great Naaman. Um, you know, I'm the servant of Elisha and uh, he's actually back in the house. But uh, he sent me out here to tell you that uh, you actually need to go back to where you came and you need to go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and uh, you'll be healed of your leprosy. See you later. You know, and he just like <laughs> takes off. Right. And this wasn't at all what Naaman was expecting. And his response to the strange request is, you know, I don't need a bath. I need to be healed. I don't need a bath. I have a disease. I need my life back. I came all this way to Israel. I went to the capital city. I detoured all the way here. And now you want me to detour all the way back to this river? This makes no sense. And so he feels the way we can feel sometimes. As we listen to the message, as we read our Bibles, maybe someone who we're close to gives us some advice about a relationship we're in or something that we need to grow and change. And inside of us, we know it's true what they're saying. We know it's true. But it seems so disconnected from reality. And we respond the same way Naaman did in verse 11. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought 
And this is us. I thought. I read the Bible and I thought. I came to church and I thought. I studied the Bible and I thought. I thought. I thought. You know, Naaman was expecting this, you know, huge ceremony with a big bonfire and people are dancing around and, you know, people are like waving their hands in the air. He says, I thought that he would come. Surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of his leprosy. He's expecting this great thing because he is Naaman. I'm Naaman. I'm great. I'm the general of the army. And yet the servant of Elisha comes out and tells him to go wash in the river. And this muddy river seven times. And this answer wasn't at all what he was expecting. And this makes no sense at all. This makes, there's no natural connection between the Jordan River and leprosy. Besides, he didn't even have the respect to come out and see me. And so in the next verse, um, as we look at it, it says, this is his response. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Why did I come all this way? There's other great rivers back where I'm from. I could have washed there. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and went off in a rage. I will not lower myself to this. I will not embarrass myself. I will not humiliate myself. There is no way I'm going to do this. And he is angry because it wasn't what he was expecting. And verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father... If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? If he had told you to go do some great heroic guy thing, wouldn't you have done it? If he told you to go climb the highest mountain to the highest peak to pick this one little flower, wouldn't you have done it? If he had told you to wrestle a mountain lion and get the skin off of a bear and bring it back, wouldn't you have done it? And he's like, yeah, I would have done that. Some manly thing, I would have done that, right? And so they say to him, how much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? Just try it. You know what? I don't understand either. I don't see the connection either. But Naaman, other than your pride, other than how great you think you are, other than a little humiliation and a little bit of wasted time and a little bit of getting wet, what do you have to lose? What other hope do you have? Humble out and obey. And uh, in verse 14, so, so he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. And as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. And here's the cool part of the story. In verse 15, the next verse is, Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. I bet you they did. You know, he, he, he gets out of this water, right? And he's looking at his skin. And he's like, his sores are gone. And he's completely healed. And so he goes back. And this is the first time he actually sees Elisha. Because remember beforehand, he didn't even come out to see him, right? And so he's standing face to face to Elisha. And what do you say to that person? Imagine. You've just been healed of your leprosy. And you're standing face to face with this prophet. You have given me my life back. Thank you so much. Please take all this treasure, take all this silver and all this gold. Please take it. You know, does, does everybody who dip in the, in the 
in the, in the river seven times get healed? Because I know a lot of lepers back in Damascus. We can make some good money off of this. This is a good business venture, right? What do you say to this kind of obedience? What do you say when you experience something so dramatic in your life because you took a step and you did something that didn't make any sense at all? And here's the point of the story. It says, now I know. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. In this moment of strange obedience, Naaman comes face to face with the living God and he wasn't even looking for it. He comes face to face with God. And here's my point. There is an encounter that you will never have with God until you decide to obey God when it doesn't make any sense, but you do it just because God is God. There is an experience that you will never have unless you do this. And in those strange moments, whether it's financial or whether it's your family or with your mom and your dad or with your kids, there is a step of obedience you will never understand until you take it. And all the explanation you're looking for, all those questions that you stay in bed at night thinking about and going, should I do this or should I not? And you're waiting for all these questions and all these explanations. You will never get those answers, guaranteed, until you obey what God wants you to do. Until you will just obey God. And that's just the way God works, whether we like it or not. Right? And when your obedience intersects with God's faithfulness, God becomes alive in a way that He would have never come alive if you never had listened to Him. And it's incredible. And because the bottom line is, God is the reason why we obey God. God is the reason. You know, we look for, we want a reason, we want an explanation, and sometimes God gives us the explanation. When we read His Bible, we find that the answer is in there. But at the end of the day, when you're laying in your bed, God is the reason. And in these moments of obedience, you do things that no one else would consider. And in those moments, the reward outweighs so much greater than the circumstances and the details surrounding that obedience. And all the explanation you were looking for will not come until you make that decision. And in those, in, in those moments, all the, expect, all the explanation and all the expectations diminishes at the fact of, oh my God. God knows my name. God knows me. You know, he asked me to do something and I did it and whoa, there's God. This amazing experience. Now check this out. 850 years later, Jesus comes onto the scene and Jesus actually talks a lot about this and, uh, in our next uh, slide here, in our next verse, it's in John chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever, Jesus says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Whoever keeps my commands. You know, this is Matthew 5. You know, if you lust, gouge out your eye. If your right hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. It's better for your whole body to be, or one part of your body to be, you know, sent away, or, or rather than your whole body to be sent to hell, right? To love our enemies, to pray for our enemies, all these crazy things that Jesus asks us to do. It's like we read it and we're like, okay, that's crazy. That's crazy. I don't think I could even do that. I don't know about that. And we're reading all these, that's what he's talking about. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, those who follow them, are the ones who love me. 
Now check this out. The one who loves me will be loved by Father. And I too will love them and show myself. See them. Here's what he's teaching. There is a connection. There is an intimacy with God that comes only with this kind of obedience. It's when you take a step out on faith, when you don't know any explanation, you don't have all the answers, you just do it. Because God is God. And in that moment, you realize how great He is. You will never have that kind of intimacy or relationship with God until you just decide, I'm going to obey God because He is God. I have all these questions. Just obey. Just do it. And then watch as God blows your mind. And, uh, which, and, and I want to close out. When these are these questions I have as we start to close out the message here today. What if God doesn't owe us an explanation? What if God is the reason we obey God? And uh, you guys can actually finish the story on your own. I love the way the story ends. You know, uh, Naaman you know, never mentions leprosy again. He's healed of his leprosy. So he's saying, here, take all this stuff that we brought from you. And Elisha's like, no, I don't want it. You can keep it. And he said, this is the reason why I never came out in the first place. Because when this happened, I didn't want you to associate me with what God did. I wanted you to associate only with God and see God's power. And so he's like, all right, if you don't accept these gifts, let me take two oxen loads of of dirt and take it home so I can worship the one and only God on this dirt. And it's an amazing story. And for many of you right now, as we begin to close this out today, for many of you right now, you are right on the edge. You are on the verge of this kind of revelation in your life. But you're not getting any more explanation. You're not getting any more information. You have just got to decide to obey God because He is God. And it's not about what. And it's not about why. It's about who is asking us. And I want to leave you guys with this question today. What is it? What is that thing most recently that God is banging on the heart, banging on the door of your heart about? And the cool thing, and from a lot of us in here, it's, maybe it's about becoming a disciple or becoming a Christian. You know, we have all these questions, and what happens if this happens, and you know, what about this, and what about that, and and we can argue and argue, and we have all these questions, but until you just take a step out on faith and do it, those questions will never be answered. Never be answered. And you know in your heart, you just got to do it. For some of you, it's a relationship that you have no business being in. And you know. You're in a relationship that you know is unhealthy. And you argue, and you argue with everyone, and you convince everyone around you, but at the end of the day, you're not convinced. You just got to obey. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your giving, a percentage giving on a weekly basis. And I'm not trying to send a, you know, a secret message here, but you know, we have 25 reasons of why we shouldn't give. But you know. It's what the Bible says. You just got to obey. And there's a realization, a, present, a realization and a presence of God moment that you will never experience until you obey God because He is God. Because God is God. And only then will God become alive to you. And if you don't, you may always live with a sense of regret in your heart. Because you never took a step out on faith. And the truth is, God doesn't owe us an explanation. God is the explanation. And He's waiting on you 
and he's waiting on me, what does he want you to do? And just do it and watch as God amazes you. And as we take communion today, you know, it, it came very clear to me as I thought about Jesus. You know, I think about when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified. And he's praying to God and he's saying, God, if there's another way that I can do this, if there's another possible way, please let me do it that way. God, I'm scared. God, I don't want to do this. But not as I will, but as you will. I don't want to do this. It's scaring me. I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to do this just because I know it's what you want me to do, God. And the reason why you're sitting in these seats today is because Jesus had that kind of obedience. He didn't understand all the questions. He didn't understand all the explanations and had all the answers, but he took a step out on faith. He trusted God, and today we're here listening to his word. And so as we take the bread and we take the, you know, the cup this morning, think about the obedience that puts you in your seat today and how we should follow the example of Jesus. So let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the example that Jesus, your son, has given us. God, we know he didn't have to make that decision. He didn't have to die on the cross for our sins. But he made a choice, God. He made a decision that he was going to obey what you wanted him to do. And because of that 